Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And, and this, this is Celebrity, Celebrity Memoir Book Club. <laughs> Ashley, why you already got the, the giggles? What's going on? I don't know. It's just, I think it's because we ate those noodles. They were laced with laughs. <laughs> okay, well, we're in for a treat today. Ashley, what kind of treat are they in for? A big one. I was going to say a bitchy one. <laughs> They're in for a bitch treat. The kind where two best friends recap the ins and outs of celebrity memoirs, reading between the lines, reading outside the book jacket, and then also sometimes inside the book jacket, the pages. <laughs> Join us on this journey. And if you aren't interested, this is your final warning to turn around before you are in a tunnel and there is not a way out safely. If you commit to a penny, you commit to a pound and... <laughs> The headphones that you are listening to right now will be fused to your ears and you'll hear nothing but our voices until you die. Ooh. So if you're not interested, just get out. You're loud. We won't be mad. Anyway, quick housekeeping up top. Apple Podcasts changed their app and now it is really trying to make sure you don't listen to podcasts. They decided our podcast app will we'll set ourselves apart from the competition by making it quite hard to listen to podcasts on it. So if you are not subscribed to the podcast, you won't see new episodes pretty much ever. Just so you know, that's an important thing. The second important thing is a couple weeks ago, we dropped some t-shirts and a couple of sizes are already sold out. So if you want to get your worm shirts, you got to step on it, baby. For those of you who are new, the worms are the listeners of the pod, the squirmy worms, the bookworms. Squirmy book lovers. They eat through pages like they're apples. We've got shirts that say worm. We've got shirts that say unhinged. Also, if you're looking for an even more unhinged podcast, don't forget to subscribe to our Patreon. Last Thursday's episode, we watched The Housewife and the Hustler, and we talked about our takes to update after we read Erica Girardi's memoir, Pretty Mess by Erica Jane, I guess. What is her actual last name? I forget. Anyway, this coming... Thursday, we are going to be watching the Keeping Up with the Kardashians reunion episode and just discussing all things Kardashian as a little follow up to this here Chris Jen app. We're so excited and I think we'll have a special guest. It's not it's not official yet, but could be could be official soon. Watch the space. <laughs> anyway, Claire. Yeah. If you were a celebrity who was in the process of writing your memoir, yeah. what would you title the chapter that encompasses this week? Oh my God. Fun times ahead. Fun times ahoy. Ahoy. <laughs> like the uh, chips. Like the pirate slang for here. Hello. When a pirate enters someone else's pirate house, they go ahoy. And that means I'm here. I'm just having a great time. I've been bike riding. I'm not really working. I love life. If you guys are looking for a way to enjoy your life more, quit your job. <laughs> do what you love. Every day I wake up and I do what I love and I couldn't be happier. I actually, I had my goodbye work drinks last night uh -huh. and my boss had something funny to say to me first he asked if there was any way I could even make money podcasting and I explained to him the revenues and the work that goes into it and then he actually said to me why do you even do it with somebody else why not just do it by yourself I can't believe he's just trying to sabotage us already <laughs> I do think that maybe I was his best friend and now he's very jealous that we used to be work best friends and now he's like she has a new work best friend did you say listen man you were always my second best work best friend <laughs> Ashley was always my favorite work best friend and you were always actually my third best work best friend <laughs> but it's just a thought that I'm taking with me why not just do this podcast by myself but not as a monologue I would just 
do my half of the conversation and the other half it would be like a call and response like at church and the listeners could say whatever they wanted and much like in a real conversation with me I just wouldn't listen to what they were saying in their car to me and I would just keep having my own half of the conversation. No you could double record the podcast where you could record your side of the conversation and like leave spaces where someone would respond the way a conversation goes and then you can play it back in your headphones and talk as if you're the other side of the conversation and just have a little chat with yourself. I think I'm gonna stick with you. Thank God. I don't know how I could even split this company in half, really. No, we're too bound together. It's like when you spill slime on a fabric cushion. It's enmeshed. Ashley. Yeah. What was the name of your memoir this week? I would call my memoir this week Forward Without Fear. Ahoy. Forward Ahoy. Don't you fucking take my thing. (laughs) That sounds scared. It sounds scared to do something that I just did. Think of a new slime. I was trying to incorporate ours together. Oh, and mesh us. I was trying to enmesh us like putty and fabric. (laughs) No, I would say moving forward without fear. I had drinks with someone the other night who is older mentor type person. And the conversation really wavered from confident and exciting to what the fuck are we talking about right now? But... In the middle, I decided to take the positives, the forward without fear parts, and really encompass them and really, in what do you call it? Eat them? Like in body? Yeah. He kept on being like, okay, really exciting things are coming for you and Claire. And I kept on being like, I hope so. And he kept on being like, no, you don't hope so. You know so. And I was like, yes, I do know so. So that's it. Going forth, I'm just trying to do a lot less second guessing of myself and a lot more plowing forth and saying, you know what? I think every now and then I have a good idea. And if I just keep on following all of my guts, then at some point, maybe something good will happen. Can I tell you a funny story about talking to somebody like that one time? One time when I was early on in my comedy career, I hooked up with this guy at his apartment, which I later found out was actually the apartment his girlfriend pays for. (laughs) I've done that. They were very on and off to this day. They're very on and off. I think they were technically off. But of course, when she found out about me, she like freaked out. But she was also a comic. So I ran into her. And one time she like sat me down and lectured me about her. She's a life coach for people. And she was like trying to convince me that she was like going to write this book and she's a life coach and she could fix my life and I should hire her as a life coach. And she was so like compelling and confident and talked so assuredly that listening to her, I was like, okay, maybe. And then the second I walked away, I was like, what the fuck was that bitch talking about? I just fucked her boyfriend in the bed. (laughs) She pays for who would want her life. (laughs) How is she going to tell me she's going to fix your life? Life coach yourself or life coach your boyfriend. But one of you two needs to shape up. Yeah, I really feel like you got problems on the home front (laughs) and you maybe should get the nest to hoid. Yeah, there's some ahoying that needs to happen here (laughs) before you can ahoy anybody else. I feel like we're going to get canceled for appropriating pirate culture and then misusing the word. I don't think pirates have internet connections. You know, the problem isn't the pirates, it's the allies. Do you know what the problem is? Is that pirates are on international waters and they can't sue us in an international court. The UN will not take this case. The UN's problematic. Okay, I'm pretty lost in what we're talking about right now. But should we ahoy into this week's episode? Oh my God, I can't. (laughs) Yes, let us get into Chris Kardashian... All Things Kardashian, part two. Nicole's been shot. That's where we left the last episode. And we are about to get into the crazy trial, the OJ Simpson trial of the century, as Chris calls it. Do you guys know the nation was interested in this? (laughs) Here's the thing about this trial is I think everything me and Ashley know is from Chris Jenner's memoir. 
Yeah. I don't know if you guys know this about us, but we are the last two white girls not invested in true crime. Sorry, we're not like sick perverts who love to hear about women get murdered and maimed, but we're just like healthy, happy people who hate murder. And unfortunately, the next, I don't know, 20 to 30 minutes of this podcast are a true crime podcast. (laughs) It's very bizarre for us to only know some of the facts of one of the most well-known cases in the world. So we're going to be saying things that may make us sound stupid, but true to form. We only talk about what's in the memoir. We were trying to do some Googling and we're like, oh my God, do you know that OJ bought a knife? <laughs> Before we get into it though, Ashley. Yeah. I just want to take the listeners into my experience as the reader. Of course. So just about this moment in my true reading experience, right as Nicole has been murdered. Why aren't there true reading documentaries? <laughs> I wanted to see how much of this book was left because you know when you're reading a book and you're like, it's so great that I'm reading, but when do I get to stop reading? Of course. So I switched to the back just to see how many pages this entire book is. And I open upon the epilogue uh-huh. because that's when a book ends at the epilogue. And I accidentally let my eyes rest on this single sentence. They were tired. They needed a break. (laughs) The sentence is the first sentence of the epilogue. It reads, I never imagined that a neck lift would be a transcendental, life-changing experience. Can you believe my hysteria? At a moment where we are mid-murder and what is presumably her final thoughts on the life well-lived, the path more trod, Chris Jenner looks back and goes, out of everything I've learned, I've learned that neck lifts are to die for. (laughs) God bless Chris Jenner. So let's get back to the murder because I know you guys are all being like, God, get through the murder and get to the neck lift because that's really <laughs> what we came to learn about. I'd like to put forth a theory sure. that I know we've stated and I do fully believe that the Kardashians would have been famous without the OJ Simpson trial, without the sex tape, whatever. We've stated that Chris would have done anything to push her family into the limelight. But I'm wondering If this trial gave her that taste of constant attention that sort of lit a fire under her touche. I agree and I see it. I think not only did it give her the taste, but it taught her that she had the fortitude to withstand constant public scrutiny in the most intense of emotional experiences. Because we will get into the details, but she is a pretty major character in this case as just like a side player because she was friends with the couple One murdered, one on trial for murder. She was married to the attorney. You know, she was a very active member in this game of chess. And she was constantly being surveilled, constantly. There was paparazzi. There was news following her all the time. She kind of revels in it. And not only that, but it's different than even because you're dating somebody. It's at the height of an emotional crisis it's like one of the most devastating things I think that can happen to somebody is to have one of their best best friends friends. get murdered I know if you got murdered well I mean I would hope you'd take it to vice and get a hulu doc out of it I I for sure would see how I could play it off But that's like in honor of me because it was a pursuit that we had in the same way that parents are like go on and live your life I'd be like please make content from this (laughs) I want to be cremated and packaged into content (laughs) anyway Nicole's been shot. Nicole's mom called Chris and told her Nicole had been shot because at that point, that's what they knew. And Chris was like, okay, where is she at the hospital? Let's go visit her. Like, will they let me see her? It really took, it seems like a while for it to cross her noggin that Nicole was unrevivable. And it wasn't until she immediately turns on the TV and she says the next few days, she just was glued to the TV because it was the news coverage for 24 hours a day. And it was from the TV that she learned that she had actually been stabbed to death, which she said was much more horrific because I, I understand that there's something about a shot that's impersonal and very quick. But to be stabbed is so intimate. 
and fucked up. Yeah, eye to eye. That's when they also learned that Ron Goldman, someone that Chris did not know, had also been murdered. Yes. At the time of the murder, Bruce is in Chicago at a celebrity golf tournament. He loves to do a celebrity golf tournament. OJ was also in Chicago for a celebrity golf tournament. Chris says to this day she's not sure if they were at the same one. OJ, of course, never actually started playing golf because he had to rush home to his murdered wife. Of course, they're a couple friends. So one of the first people she hears from is Robert. And she says, Robert called me and he said something strange. See, you better be nicer to me. He was kidding. It was his way of joking, but it was such a stupid comment. He was always a practical joker, but that went too far. I don't know that I would consider that a practical joke in literally any world. And I think she knows it wasn't a practical joke either, but I think she is placing it there to be like, I do believe that somewhere in his heart, Robert always knew that OJ if not guilty, was a suspect and was a reasonable suspect. To say that he wasn't is... Statistically and untrue. It's always the husband. It's always the husband, especially when the husband definitely did it based on all the other evidence. <laughs> so here's where it gets crazy. The next thing I knew, I was watching the news and seeing Robert Kardashian picking up OJ from the airport. Then she watched OJ arrive at his house on the television and Robert was driving the car. Robert was holding a Louis Vuitton bag, OJ's garment bag, the garment bag, and walking onto OJ's property. So I looked it up. I know Uh I wasn't supposed to. I know that's against my personal and podcastal beliefs. But I did feel like because this is such an important case and she doesn't go into details, but she is like, this was a clue. I looked up what the deal with the garment bag was. Apparently, Robert took OJ's garment bag and brought it to his own house because he claims it was because the police wouldn't let him go into OJ's house. He was like, so I just took it. It was OJ's luggage. I just took it with me to the house. Do they think it was the murder clothes in the garment bag? possibly or even something could have been hidden in there and the fact that it came off the plane with oj it was on oj's person within 12 hours of the murder and then it it just sat in robert's trunk for nine months until the trial and that the police never came and saw it it's all very suspicious there's a really clear and immediate divide between their friend group between i mean her own family because robert is picking oj up from the airport clearly team oj meanwhile chris says quote i instinctively knew that in some way oj had something to do with her death yeah and again we see chris had seeds of doubt that she's able to place back that we've said she kind of just ignored to maintain her lifestyle Mm -hmm. and now i think that they all probably came rushing forward at once and then i also think that probably was very eerie because as we saw from the first half of this book her life was very social it was very contingent on these groups of people just sitting around playing tennis drinking having a nice time and now there's this enormous wedge placed in the middle this dark shadow placed above them well if you believe somebody is a murderer you don't go to that barbecue anymore you know what i mean so as we said last time nicole had wanted to get lunch with chris right before she got murdered and they had to push it off a day because of the busyness with their friend in rehab and there was just a lot going on with the dance recital apparently according to nicole's sister what she had wanted to show chris was a safety deposit box where she had been compiling evidence of oj's physical abuse so she had 17 years of photographs documenting the abuse Chris was, of course, horrified and heartbroken to see it. She felt so guilty that it seems like that's what Nicole had wanted to tell her. She said that they couldn't speak in either of their houses. They had to be somewhere where no one else could hear. They were going to go to a restaurant. Right. Because as we've learned at this point, OJ was stalking Nicole pretty heavily. And I just think that there had always been signs. But to have photos is pretty damning evidence. And we also have, you know, her telling Chris he's going to kill me and he's going to get away with it. So this begins what I think you were talking about at the beginning of the episode the media circus. Mm -hmm. So Chris at that point had to speak to the police because she had left a message on Nicole's answering machine the morning of, and since she was the last person to try and get in touch with her, 
that put her in sort of the radar of someone who might know what's going on. And she was also, yeah, just really close with literally everyone involved. And as the media figured out, they were a big part of Nicole and OJ's life. The media circus around this was huge. It was on the news 24 hours a day. And we've all been there. When you have a 24-hour news cycle, they have to get any piece of anything they can give because all these networks are fighting over minuscule pieces of evidence. So outside of Kris Jenner's house, she says the paparazzi were waiting constantly. But the divide between Robert Kardashian and Kris Jenner just gets wider and wider. It gets very tough. And she says the whole country feels divided. I mean... I was born in 92. This isn't within yeah. my consciousness, but I've only ever known OJ as the possible murderer. But I guess up until then, he was sort of like America's heartthrob. He was a handsome athlete. He was in Hertz commercials. I think the only divide we've seen like this is Taylor versus Kanye. In Newsweek, they said no, Simpson was more than another storybook American success. He was the prototype of a modern athlete as total package. Record-shattering running back with a luminous personal charm that attracted advertisers and film producers. The public loved him. And I think she even quotes the statistic that says like 63% of America thought he was innocent. Yeah. So Robert believed OJ's story that he was innocent, but I didn't believe OJ, not for a second. Mm-hmm. So OJ, his house becomes too much. It's too much of a media circus. He can't be there. So he moves in with Robert. And this part really weirds me out. The fact that Chris is a thousand percent sure that OJ did it. And she talks about the awkwardness when she would go pick up the kids from Robert's house because they still had 50-50 custody. I don't know, man. To just let your kids live with an alleged murderer that you are confident did it. I know Robert doesn't think he did it. But I do think if someone was even remotely suspected of murdering their wife, I would not feel super comfortable having my kids stay in that house. Especially when he murdered the wife in the house where the kids were asleep. Yeah. Like kids do not deter him from getting done what he feels he needs to do. Here's where it gets weird. She says the next day, and I'm not 100% sure the next day after what, but because this is like a brand new paragraph after just general vibes were thrown at us. (laughs) Once there was a day and then the next day (laughs) there was a murder and then there was a day and then this was the next day. This was a day at some point after a murder. Her and Cece, you may know from the show, one of Chris's best friends, also Robert's first cousin. It seems that Cece and Chris were able to maintain their best friendship through the divorce. We're driving in Brentwood when we found ourselves sitting in traffic next to Robert's car and in the passenger seat was OJ Simpson. We looked at the two of them and they looked at the two of us, said nothing, and then drove off. We couldn't believe it. She goes, wouldn't you expect them to pull the car over and jump out and hug you? Because at this point, OJ is just saying, I am just a widow. Do you know what I mean? It's one thing if a murderer doesn't want to talk to you, but if you're pretending that you are just somebody whose wife died, wouldn't you want to be sad about it with your wife's best friend? But OJ and Robert were just cold. They didn't speak. They didn't smile. They didn't say a word. They just looked over at us like we were two strangers and drove. So later... She calls Robert and goes, what the hell was that about? He goes, OJ was really upset because we had to go to the airport to get his golf clubs. What? I asked. Well, Chris, he was at a golf tournament. When the police came and took him to the airport and he got off the plane, his clubs didn't make it. They just arrived today. And she goes, so you're trying to tell me that you guys needed to go to the airport to get golf clubs from the airline when we all know that the airline will deliver them to your house. I asked Robert, Chris, he really needed his golf clubs, Robert said. So then... The golf clubs were just in the trunk of Robert's car that day. Then they're stored at Robert's house. And Chris says that when Robert looks back and goes, was there anything suspicious? He goes, one day when OJ was staying in his house, the day that the golf clubs were in Robert's garage, OJ said he needed to go for a long walk and just think. And he goes, that was the only time he was really out of my sight for a few hours. So the theory is the knife was in the golf club 
because in a metal detector, like when you're traveling with golf clubs, they're not metal detecting them because they're fucking golf clubs. So they wouldn't have noticed the knife. I don't think they had the x-ray thing that's, that they do now. It was pre-9-11. It was a completely different time. Yeah. <laughs> you could have brought the corpse onto the plane. So the theory is that the knife that he used to stab Nicole was in that golf club bag. And that's the night he hit it was when he snuck away from Robert's house. Even just that sentence, he was really upset because he had to go to the airport to get his golf clubs. Wouldn't you be more upset that your wife was murdered? Whether or not you're on good terms, don't you think that the thing that would be upsetting you in that moment wouldn't be an inconvenient traffic ridden ride to lax? It would be, I call it lax. <laughs> no one else does, but. That's why I, I said, I call it lax. Okay. And I do think it's also just really fucking weird that they wouldn't just have the airline deliver it. It's really weird that the police didn't have to intercept it. You'd think that something like that would go straight to evidence. I guess he wasn't a suspect at the time, officially. Yeah, because I think the arrest happens after. So I also want to read this other interesting line that Chris states in her infamous series of hindsight is 2020s. She says, when you feel something is really wrong, it's usually wrong. Follow your instincts. You might just change someone's life. I mean, she has this when her father dies. She's like, always go to lunch with the people who want to go to lunch with you. She has it again when Nicole dies. Always go to lunch with the people who want to go to lunch with you. Follow your instincts. Like, listen when your friends are telling you that they've been roughed up by their husbands. I'd love to see her enact this at any point. So then they go to the funeral. The funeral is obviously weird as fuck. One, because it's a murder funeral. And then two, because OJ is there and the two camps show up. Right. The people who are like, quote unquote, supporting OJ, the widow, are, are obviously there to support him. And then the people who are mourning Nicole, whose funeral it is, are there. And all of those people at that point were pretty suspicious of OJ. I want to bring up Cato is his name. Yeah, Cato Kalen. Cato Kalen is at the funeral. Chris notes that he sits right in front of Chris Jenner at the funeral and he does not acknowledge her. I'd always heard the word Cato. I knew that there was the Cato, the guy who lived in the pool house. I did not know what his deal was. So he was somebody that had originally become friends with Nicole. Yeah. Moved into her pool house when she moved into her house by herself during the drama with OJ and their marriage. She liked the idea of having a man on her property to kind of keep it safe. OJ found out. And because he wanted dirt on Nicole and absolute control over Nicole, he literally bought Cato out of that friendship. He had Cato move into his guest house and then paid him a salary, a full-time salary to essentially get dirt on Nicole and bring it back to OJ. But here's what I want to say. I was looking at the funeral and the people that went to this funeral. And this idea was sparked specifically by Cato because Cato was an actor when this was happening. Yeah. When we talk about the Kardashians and what you were saying about how they were always going to be famous. And we talk about how they had all these quote unquote leg ups where, oh, they were involved in the OJ trial. Oh, the sex tape, like all these things that we want to credit their success. A million other people have sex tapes. And you look at someone like Cato and Cato had every opportunity, just like the Kardashians, to turn this into fame. Absolutely. I mean, Cato truly could not leverage himself past being the guy who was adjacent to the OJ Simpson trial because I've heard his name so many times. And you're like, my God, if that guy had just started a podcast. <laughs> it's not too late, Cato. If you're listening, we'd love to have you. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, quick answer. Would you have Cato on this podcast? Yes. Okay. You don't think it's at all problematic that he probably helped a murderer? Would we have him like in my house or would we Zoom him? So you're worried about personal safety and not general morality. Well, we don't have to like be nice to him. I think it'd be interesting to have a conversation. We could ask the hard questions. I'm not saying we'd play softball. We are journalists. (laughs) Are you saying no journalist should ever speak to a guilty? How would we get journals then? You got me backed into a corner, Ashley. And when you're right, you're right. (laughs) 
I also want to say Faye Resnick is a perfect example of somebody who did not have the Kardashian ambition driver talent uh-huh. because that bitch did everything she could to get fame out of this trial. She posed for Playboy and she wrote a book where she was like, I fucked the murder girl. <laughs> <laughs> I only knew Faye Resnick as a friend of on The Real Housewives and she was famously called the morally corrupt Faye Resnick. <laughs> I love the name Faye. I think it's beautiful. I mean, she did literally everything she could to cash in on this moment and I just know her as a friend of... <laughs> And as a morally bankrupt friend. Also, honestly, the world's worst designer. She's always interior decorating the women's houses. And I'm always going proof of her low morals. Everything looks like the inside of a casino. You're just like, (laughs) this is the ugliest shit I ever saw in my life. It's like, where do you find a 24 carat dipped rug? (laughs) What? She's always got like the gaudiest, ugliest shit. Oh my God. Think of the pain on your feet. Think of the scratching if you're just ratching through sharp gold. No, it's like the same gold that they use on cupcakes, like edible gold. (laughs) I feel like she presses that into the rugs and she's like aged with gold. (laughs) Jesus. That is morally bankrupt. (laughs) So at the funeral, one of the things that sticks out to everybody is that when OJ says goodbye to Nicole. He says, I'm so sorry, Nikki. I'm so sorry. And then kisses her on the lips, her cold, dead lips. I will say if somebody I loved got murdered, I would apologize even if I hadn't done it because I feel guilty that I wasn't able to I'm so sorry this happened to you. Yeah, I'm so sorry I wasn't able to prevent it. I think Chris owed dead Nicole an apology. Would you have kissed them on the lips though? Absolutely not. But I also, (laughs) is it somebody I'm in love with? Or is it just somebody I've murdered? Is it somebody I haven't murdered or is it somebody I'm (laughs) full on in love with? Could be both. (laughs) And then also let's talk about this little switcheroo. When it was time to leave the funeral, Robert says it's time. And then OJ and his friend AC Cowlings go into a back room, switch suits, and then leave. This is the funniest switcheroo I've ever heard of in my life. Because, first of all, they're at a funeral, so everybody is wearing presumably the same outfit, which is just sad suits. (laughs) (laughs) Second of all... They're not cartoon characters. They're like not known for their like Doug green vest. That can't be OJ. He's not wearing his one outfit. I don't really know what that was for. They should have switched faces. That's a good idea. Anyway, the next day, a warrant is issued for OJ's arrest. He's supposed to turn himself in at 11 a.m. and he keeps on delaying it. His attorney keeps on coming up with reasons for him to come in later and later. And then he breaks loose. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this, but apparently there was this white Bronco chase. Can I tell you, I've never seen the white Bronco chase because I was a wee kid at the time. I've seen clips of it. And this book did actually illuminate a lot for me. I was always like, why didn't they just pull him over? Because the whole point is that they're going super slow. Yeah. That's why it's eerie. And it went on for two hours. Because he had a gun to his head, right? I didn't know about that fact. I literally was under the impression that they were like waiting for him to break the speed limit. So they had an excuse to pull him over. They were just like, I know, I know you've got something hidden. And when you mess up, (laughs) we'll have seven helicopters and 18 police ready to get you. I also want to mention that when OJ has not yet turned himself in, when they're like, are we about to have a car chase? Like, what's going on? They call Chris and they say, are you with OJ right now? And she was like, what? No. And then they were like, okay, well, it's Bruce with OJ. And she has to put Bruce on the phone so that Bruce can prove that he's present with Chris and not with OJ. They really pretty tied to this case. And crazier than that, I guess OJ wrote like a suicide note. Mm-hmm. essentially, before he left. And Robert Kardashian comes out of his house where OJ is living and reads it to the TV. So Chris describes watching this chase, being called by the cops, being like, are you with OJ? She's watching the chase. And then she's watching TV. And Robert Kardashian is reading his suicide note. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever seen a car chase on TV happening live? Oh, my God. There was a goat that got loose or something, <laughs> right? I saw that. Okay. No. When I lived in LA. Does that sound right, though? 
Or a llama? Did an alpaca get loose? I have in no the idea what the absolute fuck you're talking about. I'm gonna Google it. Okay. <laughs> so that's I've seen a llama chase. There was car chases like quarterly when I lived in LA. All of a sudden, just all of the channels would turn to it, and it was exhilarating. You were glued to the TV. It was so fun. It was like a snow day because everyone in our office would just gather around the TVs and watch them chase. It was so much fun <laughs> i've never heard of a true cultural divide in the united states of america in regards to media consumption. i really think it's like east coast and west coast culture people would just start turning on the tvs and everyone would get so excited and we would like gather around and then it happened again and then it happened again and every time it would happen I'd, it was partially how excited i was to like watch a car chase and partially because i like loved car chase culture like i loved the way we would all like bond and be watching it and being like oh he's gonna get him <laughs> i don't think the east coast has the infrastructure <laughs> to uphold a car chase like we just don't have the highways it would take, I know. I think. I think it's the highways because in LA there's highways through the city in a yeah. very different way than there is here. So it's like easy from no matter where you've crimed to get onto a freeway and start trying to break away. Yeah, and you can go as fast as you want. Whereas here, there's just like a lot of pedestrians and there's a lot of jaywalking. Yeah, there's only like two or three lanes. Mm-hmm. I mean, they could get you pretty quick. <laughs> Chris cannot believe that Robert is on his side. She literally calls him and goes, "Why are you doing this?" I screamed at Robert. You can't possibly believe OJ and he's got you so on his team. She quotes the book American Tragedy, which was written by their friend Larry Schiller. The book about OJ's defense strategies would later tell the New York Times. Robert stood by OJ irrespective of how he felt because he felt that nobody else was standing by OJ, not because of his innocence or guilt, but because there was a friendship there. Yeeps. I'll tell you what. If I ever do a murder, you have permission to take the murderee's side. That's an interesting question. Would I take your side of the murderee's side? I think it depends who I murder. Fair. If you murdered your boyfriend, I'm obviously on your side because like girl boss shit, you know? Of course. Boyfriends deserve <laughs> gang, to get gang, murdered. Gang. <laughs> Here's what I want to say. Uh-huh. So we're on in the next chapter called OJ All the Time. It yep. starts with testify. It turns out she's going to have to testify. She's freaking out. But more importantly, I want to direct her attention to the sentence. She's talking about Mourning the emotional death of O.J. Simpson. That's what I wanted to read. Do you want to read the sentence? I wonder if it's going to be the same sentence. Should we go in unison? One, two, three. What a lot of people. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you read your sentence and I'll read my sentence. I was going to say what a lot of people don't understand is that when we lost Nicole at the same time, oddly, we also lost O.J. What I was going to say is he had been in my life since I was 17 This is what raised the question that we had earlier in last episode when we talked about the smudge across our birth certificate. She because she claims that she met Robert Kardashian for the very first time in the summer of her 18th year. Yes. And then it should have taken another year for her to actually meet OJ because she doesn't meet OJ until the back and forth and she breaks up with her boyfriend. She and Robert had a year long courtship basically where he was pursuing her and then she met OJ when she officially started dating Robert. So But she says she's known OJ since she was 17. You would think that could be a typo. But later in the book, she again says, Robert, thank you for loving me since I was just 17. It's funny how she gets kind of lazy throughout the book. I went and did some math, actually, Uh not to interrupt our murder coverage. I, unlike Chris, who can't figure out if Bruce and OJ were at the same charity golf tournament, was able to use Google and very (laughs) easily Google and find out when Cesar Sanudo, her golf boyfriend, played Arnold Palmer. And it seems like he played her the year that Chris would have been 16, which makes sense to me because she never says after I graduated high school, I moved in with this guy. She just says, I can't believe I was in high school and my parents were letting me do this. Wow. 16 is fucking murky. Because also listen to this. The British Open, which is the golf tournament that she broke up with him at and then flew straight to Robert at LAX, is in July. Yes. 
if she met him in the summer of her 16th year and she was dating that guy in the summer, which I believe she probably met him in the spring by the summer she had moved in by the next summer she had broken up with him. And then she goes and meets Robert. It makes sense to me. You are a journalist, Claire, because there's also a sentence she gives about how she was the youngest ever flight attendant. Yes. To graduate American Airlines flight school. I do not believe that, as she says, a 22 year old would have been the youngest ever flight attendant. I do believe that her birthday is in November. She probably turned 18, immediately enrolled in flight school Mm -hmm. because if she had come back end of July, a couple of weeks, he would have proposed at the end of August. She goes home, doesn't know what to do. She turns 18 in November. She rolls in flight school. She moves to New York. They have a wonderful week at the plaza. And then she spends a Christmas alone. So she's 18 years old in yeah. New York. And then there's kind of a year or two back and forth. I believe she, maybe she did two years. Yeah. Two years as a flight attendant. If that. Wow. I mean, that does all completely line up. And it is very funny the context that she was freshly 18 years old fresh off of her second failed relationship with a 30 year old that she was like well what's next for me what's next for the washed up old hag here I guess I'll become a flight attendant and just make money for myself because I'm of legal age and who would want to date a legal anyway so back to what she was saying I do want to bring up the sentence here that she talks about this is when the trial is going on it takes about six to nine months for the trial to get going she says when it all began I didn't know if I had the tools to be able to deal with that and this is talking about having people watching the intimate details of her life as it unfolded in its most public of stages she goes I would have had to tap into my inner strength and become a lot stronger than I ever knew possible this would come to serve me well later in life but for now it was overwhelming I honestly didn't think I could get through it but of course she does get through it yeah I do think this goes back to what one it gives her the taste and two it gives her the fortitude that she can take it Yeah. I mean, I can see how traumatic this would be for a family. She talks about, again, they still had joint custody of the kids. So Robert, who was the literal attorney for one side, and Chris, who was a witness so bound to the other side, she said that Robert would come over to pick up the kids and they would just sort of like stand awkwardly in the hallway and he would be like, are you wired? And she would be like, no, are you wired? And they just could not even have a conversation with each other because they didn't trust each other enough to have that conversation privately and then he right before the trial starts Robert writes the whole family a note not necessarily apologizing but saying feel I must explain my feelings about the OJ case on this eve of the trial he wants to set this standard of like this trial will happen I'm clearly on this side you're clearly on that side and afterwards we have to just be a family again he has this one interesting line in it that I think is pretty key he says I'm not a public figure and really do not enjoy the horrible invasion of privacy of you me and my family my god if this man had lived to see what the family becomes so here's where it gets crazy so the next day the trial's about to start Chris is feeling crazy she's at home and she gets a call it's from OJ in jail He began talking and talking about everything. What was so crazy was that he even started talking about the bloody glove that was found at the crime scene and that would later loom large in the upcoming trial. He seemed more concerned about Nicole's relationship with our friend Faye Resnick and what had been going on between Nicole and Faye than anything else. And this is where she talks about Faye published this book where she says they had a night of girlish passion before the murder. And she's like, everyone who knows OJ knows that he can be very long winded. She goes, It was all he talked about. She's like, I didn't know anything about it. OJ was convinced I knew something and I wasn't telling him. He was more concerned with that than the fact that he was sitting in jail in Los Angeles for the murder of his ex-wife. He was obsessed. So she goes, look, I have to go run errands. I have to go. I'll call you back later. He's like, you can't call me back. I'm in jail. Which like, fair enough, OJ. True. Point for OJ. So she's like, well, call me later. 
she drives to a stationery store. She gets to the stationery store and the cash register has the phone and goes, there's a collect call. It's from jail. She picks up the phone and it's OJ. She goes, how did you know I was here? He's like, your assistant told me. And she's like, I don't believe that for a second. And then he starts going on and on and on again. Call me at home. She goes back home. The minute she walks into the house, the phone rings. OJ again. OJ was desperate to talk. The needy OJ, the obsessive OJ, the guy I'd known my whole adult life. He just kept trying to make me believe that he hadn't killed my friend. He just kept saying, this is why this couldn't have been like this or the glove wasn't mine. He just kept trying to explain away the accusations, she says. And he would keep going back to Nicole and her relationships with other people. And this is what convinces me, frankly, that he's guilty. Because I think that this is the ramblings of someone who is in like a dissociative episode. Who's like, I could never have done this. I could never have done this. But he's convincing himself. He's not stating fact. Do you know what I mean? I think that he is sort of having this awakening to what he's done. And saying, I couldn't have done it. I couldn't have done it. In a way that shows me he did do it which I know sounds insane but it's how I feel Claire well the way she she says like he was trying to convince me that he didn't do it but not explaining how it couldn't be true so it seemed like he knew the case and he was like convincing himself like the glove didn't fit I couldn't have done it the glove didn't fit yeah which isn't that's not why you didn't murder somebody you didn't murder somebody because you're innocent you didn't murder somebody because of the piece of evidence that you're going to use and then she says he wouldn't stop talking about who she had been dating and who she had been sleeping with yeah and it's like Get over it. You murdered her. I know. So the trial begins. And also she and Bruce had been for like a year or so at that point struggling to conceive. And she is pregnant throughout the whole trial. So, of course, Chris is brought on to testify. She has to look at the horrible photos of abuse and the horrible photos of what happened. She was put on the witness list and briefed to testify potentially. And so she had to like have training for how to be on the witness stand. She had to look at all of the horrible photos. She had to be prepared to endure something pretty traumatic, which the preparation was pretty traumatic. Yeah, she was very close to the Marsha Clark prosecution. She was part of their team. Marsha Clark's assistant would call her every day to debrief her on what was going on with the trial. They watched it on their side from their office. Mm-hmm. She ended up not being asked to testify because they decided not to go with a domestic abuse point. Which me and Ashley don't understand. I guess we're going to have to watch like an OJ trial, one of those miniseries that were made about it. Because I just don't understand why you wouldn't take that approach. Yeah, especially because it seems like there was evidence. We are told via Chris, via Cole's sister, that there was a significant stock of evidence that she was being abused. And so the fact that they didn't take that angle is a little shocking to me. But I'm no lawyer. So both sides feel very confident that they're going to win. Chris is like dumbfounded that Robert feels so confident in his side. And she goes, you're going to end up in a weird place because I think you're going to lose this trial, I said. And he goes, the only way we're going to have a problem is if they find Nicole's blood in the Bronco. When investigators did find Nicole's blood in the Bronco, I told Robert, well, I guess you guys have a problem. Oh, no, we don't, he said. I guess he was right. So we get to the trial. And obviously, we don't know a ton about it, but I love that Chris gets very legal. As everybody knows, one of the big pieces of evidence that acquitted OJ was that the glove didn't fit. Right. And then because the L.A. officer was definitely racist, Mm -hmm. they were able to suggest that the racist officer had planted the bloody glove at the scene of the crime. And they were like, look, it doesn't fit his hands. Legally blonde Chris Jenner goes, the gloves have been soaked in blood. I knew they weren't going to fit. Anybody who knows leather knows that if you get it wet on any level, it's going to shrink and change the integrity of the material. (laughs) Any Cosmo girl would know. (laughs) And then actually they bring in an identical glove that hasn't been soaked in blood and that does fit. So (laughs) she's right. 
Yeah. And they also brought in the glove expert who was like, if this glove was soaked in blood, it would shrink. (laughs) Yeah. Of course, as you guys know, it turns out he is acquitted. This is what really bothers me. Not the fact that he's acquitted because he obviously did murder, but the fact that he was beaming, that his side celebrated. It should have still been a very somber occasion. It should have Your wife and the mother of your children was murdered. Yeah. And the guys, they never put anyone in away for it obviously it's sick that you're not going to jail like congratulations that but you're not going to run prison nobody's going to jail for a murder so then afterwards i guess oj's whole side goes and has a whole celebration and nicole's whole side is feeling absolutely heartbroken by the fact that there's no justice i guess they had like a huge party at oj's house everyone was just like celebrating and drinking and whatever and i think that that is really really disgusting <laughs> so A year later, she says, in an interview on 2020, Barbara Walters asked Robert what he thought when he heard that OJ had failed a lie detector test a few days after the murders. I was devastated, Robert replied. I don't know what to believe. Robert really believed he was innocent. And then I guess as soon as the trial ended, he was like, fuck, he wasn't innocent. Since then, their relationship changed. And he goes, the relationship is not the same as it once was, nor will it ever be. Why not? Barbara asked, because I have doubts. So I think Robert did something pretty bad there. I think Robert really regretted that little moment in his life. But Chris had to get past it. Life moves on. She says she had to refocus up on that lifelong dream to be the wife and mother of six kids. After the verdict, it was time for a new beginning. Robert and I decided to move on from the conflict the OJ trial had created between us for the sake of our kids. But then I was eight months pregnant. It wasn't that hard to juggle full-time work and motherhood because I had an amazing assistant, Lisa. Okay, Chris, <laughs> shut the fuck up. I know she's a mother to six and a momager, but I do not believe she even knows these kids outside of being their momager. Like, I don't think she met them until they started making money. I know. It is so rude to say it is not that hard to be a mother to four people and have a full-time job no it's insane so she gives birth to kendall nicole jenner mm-hmm. they moved to hidden hills calabasas which is where we know them to live today yes they have this whole situation where they're looking for the perfect house and they can't believe hidden hills it's so far outside of la she really like writes fucking 100 pages about how shocking it was that they found a home in hidden hills and then in 1997 they have kylie yep ever heard of her she's a billionaire <laughs> so now we're into the late 1990s. Kylie's born. She says the next several years were peaceful, wonderful, busy years. She also mentions Courtney and Kimberly each took turns living with their dad at the end of their high school experience. And she's like, I just think that our house was so chaotic. They wanted time alone with their dad. And Ashley pointed out, she was like, she quickly brushes over the fact that they moved out. But whatever. Yeah. It seems like Courtney, Kim, and Robert all spent like a year to two years living alone with their dad before they moved out for their adult lives. She does that weird thing that we talked about earlier. She says that whenever a kid was moving in with Robert, she would make this whole event out of it and they would go out and buy all new bedding and all new decorations for their room at Robert's house. And then when Courtney goes off to college, she is unconsolable. Mm-hmm. Of course, though, that leaves you Chloe and you go, oh, her and Chloe must have been very close. She says that Chloe did not really have a group of friends that she was friends with. And she goes, you know, a lot of times your friends are based on your parents' friends. And she's like, Courtney and Kim had a group of friends whose parents I was all friends with. And she goes, by the time Chloe came around, I was entrenched in my own friendships. And I never really made a group of friends centered on her. And then she talks about how in high school, she ended up homeschooling herself. And she goes, she was an incredible student which enabled her to become a built-in babysitter. And she's like, I loved Chloe because I would have had to give up so much if I had not had Chloe there to help. Because of Chloe, I was able to attend business meetings, work out, get my hair cut, even have lunch with a friend. 
Because of Chloe, I was able to get back to being myself again. And I will never forget the sense of freedom this gave me. So who was schooling Chloe? Like I don't know. And like, who was schooling Chloe? Who was raising the other children? It is really bizarre to me to be like, I loved my child because having a baby gave me a sense of freedom. I really think that this shows what the problem with Chloe is now. It's really hard for her to have a healthy, normal romantic relationship. I think that she is in these relationships where she is not getting the love a person deserves. I mean, Tristan Thompson has cheated on her a billion times. Lamar Odom was pretty horrible to her at the end. And I do think it's because she has this complex that she was kind of raised without unconditional love. The love was very conditional and it was that she was providing an assistance to yes, her mom. like if you want to be loved, you better be making my life easier. Mm-hmm. This part seems very fucked up to me. She says Kendall and Kylie feel that Chloe is their second mom, which she is. And it's like she's not. She's their sister. Yeah, who was also like a teenager at the time. And you guys aren't family where Chris needs to be working full time to provide for the family. And so it, it helps that there's older siblings there to care for the younger siblings. Chris has every resource necessary to make sure Chloe is going to school or getting an education the way she deserves to and could be watching the kids. The fact that Chloe is in the time that she's supposed to be in high school watching the younger siblings all day so that Chris can play tennis and get her hair cut is really fucking weird. Oh my god and they tell this story. Courtney and Kimberly both got new cars as soon as they got their driver's licenses and soon it was Chloe's turn but Robert just gave Chloe one of his old cars. Chloe felt like the odd sister out. Her sisters had both received brand new cards and Chloe got Robert's hand-me-downs. Chris was like, but I talked Robert into buying her a car. And for Christmas that year, we were able to give her keys and she was so happy. And it's like, God, they hated Chloe. I wonder if Robert knew it wasn't his baby. They also have this sort of house where it is chaotic. People are just kind of moving in and out. I guess at one point, Kim was dating TJ Jackson who's the nephew of Michael Jackson. Yeah, and I guess they were close with all the Jacksons. She mentions one of Kim's birthday parties at Neverland Ranch. I think that they... Courtney dated TJ's older brother. Yeah, Tito Jackson's son. But here's something crazy. And then TJ, Kim's boyfriend, I guess they dated all through high school. He moved in at one point after his mom, Dee Dee Jackson, was brutally murdered. Is Beverly Hills the most dangerous place in America? It might be. How many women get murdered there? What the fuck? I guess... Literally all of them. This is pretty insane. I feel like Chris has such a bizarre way of showing love and support. It's kind of like I provided you a room with fresh decorations and that is love. She's a mother much like an innkeeper is an innkeeper. (laughs) She likes to make it nice. I also want to say she has like weird boundaries. She talks about Kim and TJ dated all through high school. When they broke up, she goes, we were devastated. It felt like I broke up with him. I was in my bathroom when the two of them told me, and I just became inconsolable. I felt so bad for TJ because he had to try to make me feel better about their breakup as I was bawling in my bathroom. That's bizarre. That is a really bizarre reaction to a breakup that isn't yours. So the first big test on the family, I would say, that is public knowledge is in 1999, a 19-year-old Kim gets married to some random old music producer. She never even names the guy. She doesn't really go into anything about who he is. All they know about him is that suddenly Kim has a Bentley and a nice apartment and they have no idea what's going on. And then they Google her and they find out that she had gotten married to Justin Timberlake's music producer. She had been married for three months before anyone in the family even found out about it. And it says that Chris at first is really mad calling him being like, I can't believe you married my teenager. They also do not mention Kim's decision to not go to college, which Courtney going off to college and Rob going off to college are pretty big plot points. And it's just very skipped over. She talks about how accepting Kim at this time, even though she got married without telling anybody, was like a big point of proving her unconditional love to Kim. Yeah. It's so funny because I feel like Chloe's love is so conditional, but, but it's so important to prove to Kim that she's 
loved. She really makes a point of being like, I could have gotten mad. I could have said, I don't accept this and I don't approve. But instead she was like, okay, this is the family now. These time in their lives is not super interesting, but just the little thing she says about Kim is so insightful. I find like her obsession with Kim. She talks about when Kim moved in with this guy. Kim didn't need much help. She was already divine when it came to design. Kim understands this perfectly because she's exactly like me. And she also doesn't share any of the negatives. At one point, she says, I could tell Kim was pretty miserable in her marriage. And I didn't know where it was going to go. But I sensed the relationship wasn't going to last much longer. This marriage, it's another thing in this book that she was like, okay, I cannot get away with leaving this out. But I don't want to make a bigger deal out of it than it was, even though at the time it was probably massive. And I do want more information on what the fuck this was. Mm. But I feel like any more detail makes Kim look bad. But like I said, not a lot is happening at this point. The big drama in their life in the early 2000s, late 1990s, is that they moved to Hidden Hills and then they moved to Sherwood to be near a country club and they hate it. They try to move back to Hidden Hills. They can't find a house, so they have to move to Calabasas. And then ultimately they get to Hidden Hills. But that's kind of all that's going on. I do think that that's another really good example of how fucking rich they were. There was sort of this view that the Kardashians were this upper middle class Los Angeles family. They were not. They were very, very, very rich. (laughs) They're just hopping houses. Even without the show, there were people who kind of always lived chaotic lives because I do think to move like to four houses in seven years when you have six kids and like two families, it is a lot. It does seem like they're always just creating a lot of things. Bruce was always going in and redoing the house himself. I think what she says about Bruce at this time is so interesting. She buys one of these houses without telling him because she was so unhappy up at Sherwood that she bought a house in Calabasas sight unseen. And when he comes home, she's like, by the way, I bought a house. And she goes, Bruce is so easygoing, just a really chill guy. I was worried that he might not take it so well. But then he just goes, "Okay," with a raised eyebrow. And that was it. From here out, Bruce's role is just going, "Okay," and going along with it. I also want to clarify Kim's career at this point. I mean, we hear closet organizer all the fucking time. I don't know if this is Chris just gassing Kim up the way she likes to, but she says Kim's career trajectory was that she started working in a boutique and she became very known for having a great eye for style and she would have all these clients. Hear that. Yeah, no, I know that that's insane. Hear yourself say that. But she said that Kim became known for shopping specifically for clients. So she would order things for the boutique for specific clients and it would be a really like kind of a one-stop shop with her assistants. And then she got into closet organizing where she would go into people's homes, restyle their things and organize their closets. See, this to me, I can tell you what this is. This is one of those like we keep money in the circle. Rich kids who have made up jobs. Do you know what I mean? It's very much like, well, I'm an artist and I sold a painting for twenty thousand dollars. I'm 23. It's like a piece of shit, but I sold it to my friend. And then as and as a favor, I go to their fashion line and I go buy a bunch of fashion clothes. And then this other friend says they're open. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, but I agree with that. But either way, it's not like Kim was just some random closet girl. I feel like that's how it's presented by a lot of people. I feel like there's this understanding that she closet organizer and the way that we have Jordan Woods now, you know, I mean, Jordan Woods is technically or was Kylie's assistant. But there's this understanding that when you have that much money, you get to just like pay your friends to be your entourage and like come up with errands right. for them to run. What I'm saying is I feel like that's understood between us. I don't feel like that's understood by anyone. That she wasn't just Paris's assistant. She was a Paris's assistant because they went to high school together and were friends. And Paris yes. was like, I can afford to pay you to be my assistant. And then I never have to be alone with my thoughts. Right. She's very talked about in the tabloids. She starts dating Nick Lachey for a second, right? Right after him and Jessica get divorced. Yeah. So like when she dated Nick Lachey, that was a big deal. She was always seen next to Paris Hilton. Yeah. I mean, I just watched the first season of the show again mm-hmm. this week because I felt nostalgic and I wanted to. 
And she is very famous in the first season of the show. Well, her sex tape dropped right before the show. I think the sex tape made her a national name. And then the minute we knew to look for her, it turned out she was like a Where's Waldo situation. She was in every photo the whole time. Yeah. At this point, her dad, Harry Shannon, gets into a car accident. Yeah, he got into a car accident and it was very minimal injuries, but they keep him in the hospital. And then he gets a staph infection that mm-hmm. takes over. It takes about 16 weeks that he spends in the hospital. Chris goes down every day to San Diego and is taking over her mom's children's store. She's running the store for her. She's being there with her parents. And at the end of this, they find out the horrible news that Robert Kardashian has cancer. Yes. And then he says, just kidding, I don't have cancer. And then he comes back and says, just kidding, I actually do have cancer. He passes away pretty quickly once he's diagnosed with cancer officially. I think it was maybe a couple of months from diagnosis to the day he passed. Courtney and Kim were very present, very just by his side the whole time. And I guess Chloe just could not see him. She never went to see him. She couldn't bear to see him that way. Chris makes a big deal about how during the stress of this, Chloe loses weight, gains weight, and then all of her hair falls out. And she mentions this like three or four times throughout the book. The fixation on Chloe's appearance. I would come out of this book thinking that Chloe looks like the fairy godmother from Cinderella, but bald. (laughs) So Robert dies. It's horrible for the whole family, obviously. I guess, weirdly, some girl he had been dating. Not girl. She's probably like 50. Yeah. But the woman that he'd been dating that year. A lady. Married him on his deathbed. And they don't get into detail, but it sounds like it was very bad between her and the children with her saying that she is the executor of the estate now and that the kids did not get much. Yeah. Don't think it stopped Chris for a minute. Chris says, I couldn't let the grief get the best of me. I had to get moving and I needed a new direction. Life was going to pass me by if I didn't snap out of this funk. She decides she loved working at the store for her mother. Her and Courtney are going to open a children's boutique. This is a funny line. She said, it's a profound moment when your children lose a parent and you're the only parent left. It was time to stop screwing around. It was time to get off my ass and get back to work. I mean, okay. (laughs) She says she sees her job as their sole parent now to like make sure that everybody has a dream and a motivation and drive to pursue their futures. Which like, what was she doing before? (laughs) But also, I don't know, is that your job as a parent to like make an entire empire so that your kids can have a gig? I wouldn't complain. If my mom wanted to make an empire so that I could have a gig, I would be fine with it. Yeah, but I don't think it's her job. I don't think I require her to. (laughs) So they open this store called Smooch. She goes to Courtney to open Smooch, the baby clothes store, because she says Courtney had always wanted to be a clothing designer and was already designing her own t-shirts and selling them to different stores around town. Yes. What do we think that means? I mean, I don't think any of this means anything. I know exactly who these people are. None of them are doing anything. (laughs) They open Smooch, the baby store, and then very quickly, Courtney, Chloe, and Kim all open up what we now know as Dash next door. Yes. So they have Smooch. They have Dash. Their lives are hectic. They're running around. And all of their friends are always like, oh, your family is so crazy. You guys should have a reality show. Literally, a producer says this to them. The producer who had produced Bruce Jenner in my favorite titled show of all time, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. This is how easy it was for this goddamn family. She goes, oh my God, everyone says that to me. And then Dina goes, I know Ryan Seacrest people. The next morning, Dina called me and said, can you get over to Ryan's office? When? I asked now. So she goes over, pitches them. A few hours later, I got a call from Ryan and Elliot. Congratulations, they said, we have a show. So here's the thing is I think they've always been adjacent to pop culture. I mean, well, listen to this. Up until that point, Kim had been doing club appearances on her own. And That's she was what very I mean. popular in the scene. The clubs were clamoring for her and she was also getting offers for deals with clothing manufacturers. The positive attention was thrilling for all of us. But I knew that once the girls were on television show, these opportunities were going to multiply exponentially. She sees this flash when Kim is pictured near Nick Lachey and all of these 
tabloids pick it up that Kim is dating Nick Lachey. She's watching this all happen because things have very much changed since her day of being part of LA's main scene. Now LA's main scene is a global empire. If you are photographed being kind of part of the it crowd in LA, suddenly you are doing club appearances all over the world. You're reading her discovering that kind of in real time and then turning it into a business quickly, which is smart. Well, she had always been doing this. If you think about what the infomercials with Bruce, I mean, in the same way that they've tapped into Instagram now, she was tapping into infomercials in the 90s. Like she always was aware of how to spin stardom into a business. So she talks about how they decided to do the show. They decide that the number one thing about the show is that no matter what, the cameras have to keep rolling. They have to be as real as possible. The show premieres in October 4th, 2007. I also want to point out really quick that Caitlin was quite hesitant. So when the show starts, I mean, of course, it was coming off the heat of the sex tape, which is what got Kim Kardashian on the map. Mm -hmm. Out of the LA scene and into the American public view. They do not mention that in this book. And by they, right. I mean Chris Jenner. Chris Jenner, however, does talk about the scandal of her letting Kim do Playboy and how Kim turned around and had Chris do a nude shoot as well. And that's kind of like their playful way of letting people know what they're about and that it's empowering and that they're fun and whatever. She does not mention the sex tape at all. However, she talks about how during that first season, the kids had some hardships, including Chloe's DUI. And then she gets into deep discussion about Chloe's DUI yeah, about how it came out of like a depression because of her dad. Even though I, once again, just watched the first season of keeping up with the Kardashians and both are pretty heavily featured. So it really is Chris's book that decided to completely omit the sex tape because on the show, they talk about the sex tape and how much Kim doesn't want to keep talking about the sex tape. Like it's a plot point that they don't want it to be a plot point. I remember Chris's famous line as a mother. I was so angry at her, but as a manager, mm-hmm. <laughs> she keeps going on about how much she loves her daughter. One of my favorite displays of favoritism of my daughters. Courtney is a tango, spicy and difficult at times. Chloe is a salsa, sassy and all over the place, perpetually changing directions. Kim is a waltz, easy, smooth and beautiful. My God, she is just like, Courtney is, Courtney has some pizzazz, but she's, you know, uh, Chloe is a, uh, a wild, unbroken horse, thick as hell. And, and Kim is stunning, perfect, 10 out of 10. She literally goes on to go, Kim and I are like twin souls. She's obsessed with Kim. The rest of this chapter is really just her kind of bragging and listing the businesses that they've launched because of keeping up with the Kardashians. And I do think it's kind of funny the way none of them exist anymore. One, none of them exist anymore. Two, she frames them all here as these thoughtful projects that have to do with their brand. But really, all of them are just quick cash grabs. Like she's talking about how it was their absolute dream to have a clothing line. And she's like, finally, we identified our retail partner, Sears. She's using all these retail words to talk about the research she did trying to figure out what the best option would be for their line. And she's like, I have fond memories of Sears when I was a little girl shopping with my grandmother. And she really hypes up Sears and it's like this isn't the fucking heyday of department stores no one's whacking off to a Sears catalog anymore just admit that they offered you the most money (laughs) yeah they do quick trim they've got the fragrances Kim has two fragrances and then she talks about Lamar and Chloe doing their unisex fragrance called unbreakable that broke (laughs) yeah so the rest of the book just kind of about all their companies and then of course it's funny because it ends at a time when she thinks everyone in her life is settled so she talks about at this point Courtney and Scott have just had Mason Kim had just married Chris Humphreys and of course Chloe and Lamar Odom are together. So the very last paragraph in the book, the night that Kim is proposed to and they're at the engagement party and everybody's having fun. She goes, everybody started screaming, jumping up and down and crying. It was just a great, great night. We had dinner and once again, I just sat around looking at my six children, my husband, my grandchild and my three son-in-laws, one honorary and one future. 
Life is so good. Boy, oh boy. None of the men made it out of this chapter alive. I don't alive. know that Chris Humphreys made it to the book publishing date. Like, <laughs> I don't know that that marriage lasted as long as it took for this book to be edited and promoted. This last chunk is the part that I would say I would have left out for this iteration of her memoir. I think it was so interesting. I think she should have ended the day they got the show, honestly, because the rest of this is her like weirdly recapping stuff we've seen on TV slash saying stuff that is going to fall apart. I think that the only thing that could have stood the test of time in a memoir is the leading up until the camera started rolling yes. and giving us a like my life until like before you knew it. That would have been smart. Yeah. But then she added this epilogue. And I think it's important that we acknowledge the epilogue because I want to read the epilogue word for word. (laughs) I do, too. Should we almost do a Patreon episode where we just read it out loud? I guess I'll do that. We'll do that this week. That'll go up this week. I'm very excited. It's truly insane. I mean, it's all the neck lift. This whole final chapter is comparing her neck lift to like a great feat of strength that she endured. I mean, as we've said, we've read this page before, but I never imagined that a neck lift would be a transcendental life-changing experience for me at the age of 55. I mean, she talks about going in for surgery and anesthesia, and she's like, this was a big deal to me because we didn't even mention this because it only got a paragraph at the beginning of the book. But when she was a kid, they found a tumor on her leg. When I was going under, they said if the tumor was bad enough, they'd have to amputate my leg at the hip. And when I woke up, I had a leg and I was so grateful. And so now she's like, I'm scared of anesthesia because... I think of that time when I didn't know if I'd wake up with a leg or not. And you're like, but she did get her boobs done twice. So now she's getting a neck lift and she like keeps on wanting to re get her boobs done. That's what leads to the neck lift thing. So it's weird that this chapter is about her ultimate fear of surgery when the chapter is about how she kept on going to this plastic surgeon and being like, are my boobs okay? Do you think I need new boobs? And he was like, they're fine, but your neck is a piece of shit. (laughs) Your neck is a droopy old handbag and we hate it. But then she's like talking about waking up from surgery and all of her family is there and all of her friends are there. She's like, what did I do to have my beautiful daughter, Kim Kardashian, sleeping in the room with me to make sure I'm okay that night? She fucking loves Kim. She loves Kim. For surgery, this is another sentence that I think is very important. I spent weeks preparing for the worst, blah, blah, blah. What if, God forbid, you don't wake up from anesthesia? Who will take care of everybody? Who will be their manager? I mean, you live in Los Angeles. Managers are a fucking dime a dozen. Not their mother, just their manager. I guess Kendall and Kylie would have had to fend for themselves because they were, she wasn't managing them yet. Yeah. I guess they would have just had to find a new mother. Well, you guys, this has been Kris Jenner and all things Kardashian. I'm sure she'll write another memoir. I wonder what Kardashian will write a memoir next. Scott. Scott, 100%. My big money is on Scott because I think that soon he's going to need money. Okay, here is my theory about Kardashian memoirs. I don't think we're going to get the full truth from anybody until one of the guys who has been linked to the family but is no longer actively gaining anything from the family needs money. And we know Scott has a drinking problem and probably a gambling problem. At some point, he's going to need some quick cash. And so he's going to sell an absolute tell-all. And he is going, I think he might wait till the kids are a little bit older, but he is going to rip the family limb from limb because he'll have nothing left to lose. Can I tell you though, I do think it'll take a while to get it because I think he will need the money for his drinking problem. But because of his drinking problem, he'll never get around to writing it. That's true. I think if he has any respect, he'll wait till all of the kids are 18. Not all of the kids, like all of his kids are 18. But I don't think he actually will. I think we'll get it probably around the time Mason's 18. One of those kids is going to write a memoir. Dream. Oh, my God. She's too on the outside. They would like, but they would have no problem blacklisting her from the world. I think it's going to be one of them. I think it's going to be one of the younger kids who like wants to think of themselves as different. As like a writer. A writer. You guys... 
Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and check out the Patreon. Check out the merch. Follow us on the socials. We'll see you next week. Love ya.